Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So a story is told of a seminary professor who often employed object lessons to get his points across. And he uh, once was giving a lecture on a Christian understanding of anger. And he began the class outdoors with a six-foot paper target laying on a hillside, tampered down. And then he asked the class um, to sketch on a piece of paper that he gave every one of them, a picture of the person that they hated the most. They were to then individually put that picture upon the paper target and take lawn darts and throw them at their nemesis. Uh, I'm going to let that image linger, and we'll come back to it at the end. But he was trying to address the subject of anger in a visual way, and I will address the subject tonight. Uh, We hear the subject of anger come up in Jesus' antitheses. The antitheses uh, arrive in the Sermon on the Mount very early on, and they call them the antitheses because Jesus is contrasting the old Mosaic teaching or what are interpretations of Mosaic teaching with what he is offering. And what he is offering is is deeper and more profound than the Mosaic teaching. And he speaks about a variety of topics like lust, divorce, etc. But he begins with anger. He begins with anger. And I find that uh, very interesting and in some ways alarming. It's a convicting word. Uh, So I want to mention just three things about this passage tonight. And I hope that these three things will help us to understand what Jesus is attempting to communicate to us. I want to talk about the Old Testament teaching first, and then I want to talk about how Jesus deepens it. And then lastly, I want to talk about Jesus' practical example of how non-anger can work itself out. Uh, So let's talk about the Old Testament teaching. Um, And, uh, you know, it's important to note that in the immediate context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has already demonstrated his tethering to the Old Testament. Uh, He loves the Old Testament, respects the Old Testament, believes that the Old Testament is inspired, and he even told his followers, do not think that I came to abolish the Law and the Prophets. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to fulfill the Law and the Prophets. And then he goes on to quote the Old Testament twice in our passage, twice, two passages. Um, You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, um, etc. He says, um, he, he gives a contrast to that teaching. Um, now he's combining two Old Testament law texts. The first is the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The second is Numbers 35, in which um, murder is adjudicated in a court, often resulting in the death penalty. But he's combining these Mosaic teachings. He's trying to communicate what the Old Testament says about the importance of not destroying the image of God. But then Jesus utters these game-changing words. 
you have heard it said. Like, you know what I'm telling you. You've heard these things before from authoritative sources. You know this material. But I say to you, here's what's interesting. Jesus doesn't just reiterate Old Testament law, reminding people of things that they may have forgotten. He's, in fact, indicating they never forgot them. He's saying instead that he's going to add to this ancient document. Um, in fact, one could argue, and I think rightly argue, that he prioritizes his own words above Old Testament scripture. You have heard it said, but I say to you. So he's putting his own words above that which is already and previously inspired. Uh, there are many people, Rabbi Kushner is one of them, um, who view many of Jesus's ethical maxims to be beautiful, but they cannot endure the Sermon on the Mount because the Sermon on the Mount uh, um, shows a Christ who believes himself and his teaching to have superior authority to what came before him. And that's seen as a near blasphemous thing. Uh, and so uh, Jesus is here evidencing something about his own authority when he cites this Old Testament teaching. It's not because he's dissing the Old Testament teaching. It's because he's superseding it with even deeper meaning, deeper profundity. Uh, and it, just for what it's worth, as an aside regarding Jesus' divinity, there are people, and you'll hear from them from time to time, who say Jesus never claimed to be God. First of all, that's actually textually not true. He actually claims divinity on a number of occasions. More than that, he acts as, as if he's God even when he's not declaring his own godhood by saying things like, you have heard it said in inspired scripture in the infallible word of God, but I say to you, he is not so subtly making a claim about himself when he says things like that. Something about the Old Testament teaching now something about how Jesus deepens it. He doesn't jettison the law or even reduce the law. He actually makes it more invasive. This is what he says in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now I want you to notice that Jesus is here addressing a particular sort of anger, not situational anger. I'm angry with my place of employment. I'm angry at the current state of our country. I'm angry at the church. I'm angry at my past. No, it's personalized anger, anger directed toward a person. Anybody who's angry toward his brother and calls him a fool. Um, and what I love about Jesus is, is his sneakiness. He's very sneaky. He begins his treatise on ethics by focusing on murder, which, you know, 99.9% .9 of his audience, even though we think that they lived in thuggish, brutal times, most people didn't kill other people most of the time. You know, it just wasn't the thing. And likely you haven't either. And if you have, you know, we have confession and we can, we can square with it at some point. Maybe jail is a good thing, but, um, uh, but, but, uh, the vast, majority of Jesus' audience that day, when he began in this way, thought, yes, we ought to take this seriously. Murder really is a big deal. But I've never committed it, nor would I. But then he turns the tables on 100% of his audience by saying, oh, no, you think that this doesn't apply to you. It does, because I'm not just talking about murder from your hands. I'm talking about what lives 
within you. Because the crisis, believe Jesus, the crisis is almost always unseen and imperceptible for years and years and years, growing and growing and growing until it takes you over and then ruins your life. It happens, it occurs in the nuclear reactor that is the heart. And notice how Jesus here raises the intensity of the Old Testament demand. Now condemnation before the courts does not occur only for murder, but for emotion. It says you're liable because of your emotional life, if you're angry. And also speech, if you insult your brother in this particular way. So the demand is higher, uh, and the penalty is also worse than the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the worst they could do in the law was kill you. Jesus seems to have something eternal here in mind in his teaching. And notice how he connects an eternal punishment for saying something that you've probably said today, right? You fool. Now, in, uh, and if it just means you fool, then uh, at least I'm in trouble. I have a brother, and we call each other idiots constantly. So your minister is in a lot of trouble, unless Jesus means something more profound here. I think he does, and I don't think I think that just because it lets me off the hook. I think it's because of the Aramaic word raka, raka, which doesn't really mean fool or idiot. It means empty. It means to be vacant, hollow. Jesus is saying something like this. If you say to your brother, that is somebody who is with you in the faith, whom you ought to regard as a fellow co-laborer, Yes? If you say to that person, you are worth absolutely nothing, you're worth nothing, you are nothing, you are a non-person, you have functionally, in your heart at least, erased the image of God from their being, you have depersonalized a person. And he said, if that is the normal way that we operate, there's something hellish about that disposition. We have no right to take away a person's personhood. Uh, Well, Jesus is here deepening the law, deepening the law to show that sin always precedes behavior. Sin begins in the emotional life. It begins in the psychological basements of the human condition. Or to put it another way, uh, the gulags, the Khmer Rouge, the southern lynchings, the clergy cover-ups of sexual abuse begins with emotion, not action. Emotion, not action. And therefore, uh, our concern ought to begin with the emotion. Uh, Keeble, who is an, an Anglican author, um, I don't have a lot in common with him, but I, I like this quote. Uh, he, um, he, he talks about the, the power of anger and how it can lead to possession This is what he writes. Those who feel themselves most deeply drawn to the crises of our age, they themselves cannot be too careful in reminding themselves that one chief danger in such times arises from their own tendency to engross the whole of their mind in rage. Public concerns, whether regarding the church or society, will prove ruinous to those who permit these things to occupy all their care and thoughts neglecting ordinary duties, especially those of a devotional kind. He's talking about the overwhelming nature of rage and how it can consume and consume all of us. 
Yeah. So Jesus is here deepening the teaching, saying that the problem really does reside in the nuclear reactor of the heart. And that's where, um, that's what God sees. That's what God sees. And then he gives this practical example. He summarizes um, how, how this ought to enflesh itself, his teaching ought to enflesh itself. And so what does he do? Um, he, he, he says something that most would regard as really inappropriate, actually. This is what he says in verse 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, Jesus is here citing uh, an example that occurs within the most sacred space in the world, right? So this is a person making an offering on an altar in the temple. And for Jews, that's the most sacred thing you could do because it was at that altar where reconciliation between you and God was at play, right? In the blood atoning sacrifices that were offered there. And what, what, and maybe this hypothetical person that Jesus is talking about here is offering a sacrifice for the sin that he committed against a particular brother or sister. So the person is trying to square with God and deal with his own sin. And Jesus says, stop right there. Don't do it. Jesus invades the, the holy place and says, don't do it. Stop the sacred action because you need to deal with something else first. And the message is pretty clear, even though it's a little scandalous. He says, interrupt even the most sacred and central duty to God in order to be reconciled with people. Because otherwise, your action before God is pageantry. It lacks credibility. You're sort of phoning it in. It's not real because you're pretending as if you didn't hurt an image bearer. And you have to deal with that. You can't pretend with God. Well, the idea that he's saying, that Jesus is indicating, and also is replicated in the New Testament, is that you can't divorce theology from sociology. You can't divorce God talk from people talk. The two are connected. Your relationship with God and your relationship with those who bear his image are inextricably connected. This is why in 1 John 4, uh, the author writes, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, uh, maybe you're like me, and um, there are some people that I would love to have voted off the island. You're, yeah, survivor, yeah? I, I want to vote people off the island. There are people I never want to see again. Yeah. Um, there are people that, you know, I've told you before that I wanted to invent a vaporizer gun so that I could, like, I don't want to hurt them. I just want them to disappear forever, right? I want a vaporizer gun. But I haven't invented a vaporizer gun. And if somebody has, I'm glad I don't have one, right? Uh, and I'm, I'm glad for theological reasons, because there's something that's off about me, because I desire that. It's not right. It's, it's not how God has redeemed me. There's something out of sorts about that impulse. Because these are people that are, yes, deeply imperfect, even harmful to me. But is there any aspect of my being that prays for their well-being? Well, there ought to be. Yeah. Um, and so when our hearts um, ferment with that kind of anger against a human being, Jesus says you, you need to deal with them before you deal with God. But why? Because when our hearts ferment with anger against someone, we are, whether we know it or not, raging against more than a person. 
when we hate a person, it's actually a subtle indictment against God, a God who would make such a person in the first place and providentially put them in my life. When we hate somebody, we're sending a message about the one who is that person's source. We're saying something about uh, that person's sacred originator. That's the danger of such hatred. So Jesus says, please, you have to square it with this person before you come to God. So that's something about the Old Testament teaching, something about how Jesus deepens the teaching, and a practical example that he gives us. By the way, this practical example is miniaturely, miniaturely uh, instantiated in our service tonight at the peace. I've mentioned this before, but it doesn't hurt to hear it again. The peace is not just a time when you awkwardly greet your neighbors whom you sort of know. Peace be with, yes, peace. And you're, you don't know if you should shake hands because disease and, you know. Like, it's not just that, though that's a lot of fun. Um, uh, it's actually a time in which if you have a beef with your sibling in Christ and you've and been out of sorts with them, that you could go somewhere with them and work it through before you come to the Lord's table so that you don't play games, so that you don't pretend, so that it's not a pa- it's not pageantry here, that, that we are becoming one body as we receive the body of Christ. Yeah. That's the idea. That's why it's there. Uh, and so I want to land this in our lives right now um, uh, in, in this way, just to ask you this question, who inspires your rage? Who inspires your rage? Whose face would you put on the paper target? If you had a lawn dart, at whom would you throw it? Uh, Maybe it's a public figure whom you don't know but is on your TV all the time. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's an absent parent. Maybe it's an abusive uncle. Maybe it's your child's teacher. Maybe it's your ex. Maybe it's your minister. Maybe it's a committee. Maybe a professor. Who inspires your anger? And what shape does your rage take? Maybe you, like me, are often in denial about your own rage. I often, I used to think, I no longer think this, I don't have a problem with anger because I don't really raise my voice very much. Because I thought that was the only evidence of anger, right? A raised voice. Oh, but anger hides. Anger is very surreptitious. Anger hides in sarcasm. Anger hides in ridicule. Anger hides in manipulative silences. Anger hides in online trolling. Anger hides in fault-finding criticism. And Jesus' words to us are meant to sober us to say that that behavior is not cute. It's evil. It's hellish. And these things ought not to be mentioned among us. Now, some people will push back, and I think it's right to push back and say, well, wait a minute, is anger always sin? Well, no. I mean, as people fashioned after God's likeness, uh, we are to be angry when abuse and injustice occurs. Anger is rightful. After all, God himself is at times displayed in Scripture as angry. Um, But for human beings who are not only image bearers but very fallen, Anger is an easily infected wound, and the bacteria will grow very quickly if it is not treated fast. There are people who trust their rage too much. 
um, I, I think I may have, um, I've told you this story before, but growing up in church, I was always terrified of annual meetings because it was like open mic night and you never knew who was going to stand up and take the mic and gripe about something. And, and the same woman every year would get up at the mic and criticize the, the minister and the staff vociferously. And when she was uh, countered or critiqued for doing this, she said, I have every right to express my righteous indignation. Yeah, if you have a lot of that, you should start distrusting it, like now. Like distrust your righteous indignation because if I were a betting man, I would bet that it's not very righteous. Just just saying. Anger is a very easily um, infected wound. And so I think we ought to deal with it very quickly. Um, St. Paul does say, be angry, but do not sin. Um, and so the question is, how do we do this? If we are to experience anger once in a while, how do we square with it? Um, here is my answer. Um, we actually need to get spiritual. We need to get religious. You need to be a spiritual person if you're going to deal with anger. You need to move beyond the flesh. You know, it's not just about breathing techniques. It's not just about aromatherapy or essential oils. I like spearmint too, right? And maybe, like maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes burning the right candle will help you. I just don't think it's enough. Like I think we have to start in the rag and bone shop of the heart. I think we have to start where Jesus started. And Jesus seems to indicate that the problem is in the nuclear reactor. And that, and he tells us in the Greek of this passage that aromatherapy is not enough. That was, I thought that was amazingly humorous, but I'm, I'm often wrong about how funny I am. Um, so we have to go to God. And I'm going to take a, a, a text slightly out of context, but not too much, from Peter. Peter writes in his elder years, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. That's his way of saying get spiritual. If you have a real problem in your core, you have to go to God. Like ultimately, you have to go to God. Other things can help, but they're, they're mediated helps. Like you have to go to the origin. You have to go to the, 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 the genesis of your value. You have to go to God. You have to go to God and present your cares to God, to cast all your cares to God. That is, you articulate your agony, your pain, the things that are causing you anger to God. And I would say to go to God first, like not just to your roommate or your best friend or your staff or your committee or the, you know, the person that you're even mad, mad at, but that you would, you would pray and, and seek the Lord, and then he'll direct your path to whom you're supposed to go to, including the person that you've offended. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a, an example of one person who did this. Um, they actually uh, wrote a prayer in Ravensbrück concentration camp. This is a Jewish person who wrote a prayer in the midst of that uh, seemingly endless hellscape. And these are the words that they penned in that camp. Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not remember all the suffering, suffering they have inflicted upon us. Remember, rather, the fruits that resulted from this suffering. Our comradeship, loyalty, humility, courage, generosity, and greatness of heart. And when they come to judgment, let all the fruits we have borne become their forgiveness. Well, that's somebody who went to God. That's somebody who took their pain to God and was able then to forgive people who have abused, maybe raped, harmed, maimed them. And that's an astounding thing. 
You know, Christianity encircles a man who is deeply hated. Our religion hinges upon a rejected corpse, a slaughtered man who was slaughtered because of anger, because people were angry with him. As he was bleeding and writhing, Jesus was flanked by people who eagerly broke the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, because their rage-filled emotions convinced them that they were doing the right thing, the needful thing, even the just thing. Well, that seminary professor, uh, whom I reference in the opening story of this sermon, did something shocking at the conclusion of his lawn dart exercise. After everyone tossed the darts, the jabbed and stabbed faces of their enemies uh, uh, taken down, he removed the target from the hill. And underneath that paper target uh, was a poster of Solomon's painting of Jesus, now completely assaulted, ruined, punctured, and torn. His point was simply this, human anger, human anger, was Jesus' executioner. He died because of our raging emotions, emotions which physicalize themselves in the form of nails and thorns. And there he was suspended in place, like the martyr Saint Sebastian, who was himself run through with dozens of darts. All of the attitudes and actions that should have damned us ended up damning his body upon the cross. But through his beautiful, beautiful and scandalous achievement at Golgotha, that cliff shaped like a human skull, we have the opportunity to cast all our cares and all our rage upon this beautiful man who forgives it all, bears it all, and begins to heal our volcanic hearts and turn them into hearts that begin to thud with the love of heaven. Well, may it be so for you and for me. Amen. They took your life, they could not.